Philippians 1, let's read from verse 21 through verse 30. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you tonight, and we bow before you, the King of heaven. Grateful, Father, to be among those who have been ransomed, healed, and restored, and forgiven. God, we want to stir our hearts to praise your name. You are worthy, worthy of all praise and all glory, worthy of all of our adoration, worthy certainly of our attention tonight, our devotion. God, as we come to your word again, we ask that you would open our eyes to see the truth and to appreciate it, but not God just to, <clears throat> pardon me, not, not to just look on as a... Um, an appreciator, uh, like art appreciation, but God, um, finding it delightful, God, we pray that you give us grace to, to obey it, to live upon it, to hear it as words from our King, commands, yes, but also words of love. So God, we pray we ask that you would fill our hearts with delight at the things that you say. And in that delight, that it would be our glad duty to obey and to seek to put to practice everything that you've said. God, help us to weigh your words, not in judgment, but to, to understand as we look at one passage and another passage and try to Understand exactly what you mean. God, give us wisdom. May your spirit lead us and teach us. God, we are needy people. God, so needy we scarcely know what we need, but we do need you. Above and beyond everything else, God, we need you. And we ask that you would give us all that we need. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, in verses 12 through 26 of Philippians 1, Paul has described what he has endured and he is enduring and he's also described his response to that. He tells the Philippians he wants them to know about his circumstances. But he also makes sure that they understand that as hard as his circumstances are, that he views them as the progress of the gospel. And he rejoices even though there are men who are standing to preach and they're preaching the truth, but they're preaching the truth thinking they're doing him harm. But because Christ is exalted, he rejoices. And then he looks forward and wonders whether he'll live or die. And even in that, he says he rejoices because either way, Christ will be exalted. So he has explained that to the Philippians, helping them to understand and hopefully also stirring them to respond in a similar manner and easing their concerns for him. You can imagine you hear your friend is in prison. How are you doing? Well, it's hard, but Christ is good. And here's what's happening. So he turns from that in verse 27 to a new section that runs through chapter 2 and verse 17. And he turns to the Philippians. This section that we're about to get into contains a call to the Philippians to cultivate Christian graces. And particularly those graces necessary for facing the difficulties that the Philippians will face. You might notice that in verse 27, he calls them to stand firm. In verse 28, he mentions that they have opponents. In verse 29, it's been granted to them to suffer for Christ. And in verse 30, he states that they are experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So in some way, in a like manner, the conflict that Paul has endured and is enduring, the Philippians are also enduring. So there's difficulties, and those difficulties will need to be faced in the power and, and enabling of the Holy Spirit. And so he turns to them in verse 27 and says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And in that statement at the beginning of verse 27, we have a, a comprehensive summary of what's to follow. So what's to follow is, is a detailed explanation or illustration kind of unpacking that idea. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Well, let's look at what Paul says and we'll look at uh, first this phrase in verse 27, this first part of verse 27, and then we'll probably pick up through uh, verse 30 as we finish this out tonight. But first I want to... Look at three words that are in verse 27. And that phrase, um, that summary that he gives us at the beginning of it. And the first is the word only. And you might think that a strange place to start. But he is, again, this is, he's turning a corner. He turns away from a description of himself to look at them. And he says, now only do this. And he doesn't mean like this is the only thing you need to do. Or this is the only thing I need to say to you so much as, especially this. Most importantly, this, you may have said this before or heard someone say something like this. Maybe they've been talking to you for a while and as they wrap it up, they say, now, if you don't remember anything else, remember this. 
And that is kind of what Paul is doing right here. I've got more things to say to you, but listen, if you could remember this, only do this. What, Paul? Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. His situation is, humanly speaking, uncertain. Not sure if it's going to result in life or death. If it results in life, will he be free to come see them? Will he remain in prison? Not sure. But you only make sure that you conduct yourself this way. Obviously, he has more to say. If he didn't, then he could sign off right here. You know, yours truly, Paul, and the letter could end. But there's, there is more to say. So, especially this. Um, we, I'm sure, say things like this all the time. Oftentimes with the boys, the boys are playing soccer right now. And so there are times we'll say like, uh, tonight when you play, remember to watch out for this. And don't forget this. And maybe you give three or four things that you hope will be helpful. And then, but most importantly, have fun. And it's, it's youth soccer, right? Have fun. Um, so Paul, you know, there's, there's lots to say, but most importantly, especially, this kind of sums it up. Conduct yourselves this way, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Another way you could think about it, or, or along with that idea, again in light of what he has said in verses 12 through 26, and especially verses 20 through 26, where he gets to the matter of life and death. You know, I expect Christ will be exalted in my body, whether I live or die. To live as Christ, to die as gain, that whole discussion. Whatever Paul's outcome will be, whether he remains a prisoner or not, whether he dies or not, Paul's expectation for the Philippians remains unchanged. But you, only this, make sure you conduct yourself this way. I'm uncertain about my outcome. But you, he goes on in verse um, 27, he says, so that whether I come and see or remain absent, I'll hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Whether I come or, go, or not, not sure, but you, either way, my presence with you should not change that. Whether I live or die should not change that. You make sure you do this. Conduct yourself this way. And so Paul has in view the glory of Christ among the Philippians, whether he lives or dies. So make sure you conduct yourself this way. The second word I'd like to point us to tonight is the word conduct. When Paul writes about living in this world, the Christian living in this world and how you ought to live in this world, his favorite word to use is a word that he uses metaphorically, and it's the word walk. Or walking. So, for instance, if you will look just maybe across the page or turn a page in Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, he says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Their life looks like this. And then he goes on in verse 18 and says, For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Now you understand he's not talking about their gait 
He's not talking about, you know, whether they strut when they walk or whatever. He's talking about how they live. Their life bears out the fact they are enemies of the cross of Christ. But you walk and follow the example that you've seen in me. He uses the same metaphor in Romans chapter 8 and verse 4. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Chapter 13 of Romans, verse 13. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing. And I've obviously lost, that's the wrong verse, pardon me. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. Ephesians 2.10 We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And there, there are others, but I'll stop there. So this is like one of His favorite words for describing our conduct in this life, how we live. But that's not the word that He uses here in Philippians chapter 1. And the word that He uses here is not even the normal word for conduct. It's actually a form of the word for citizen. It's the same word in a slightly different form. It's a noun here in Philippians 1. In Philippians chapter 3, he uses the word in a verb form. Pardon me, it's a verb here. He uses it as a noun in Philippians chapter 3. In verse 20, when he says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, same word in, as a verb in Philippians chapter 1. The translation con conduct is not bad, but it does miss the fact that he's talking about conduct as a citizen. The life you live as a citizen. So I think what he's saying here is not simply watch your conduct, but watch how you live your life as a citizen. It's a call to maintain a standard of conduct befitting a citizen. To behave in a way that rightly reflects the character and reputation of your city. Now, you may have noticed before, maybe you haven't, but if you've noticed, as you drive into New Albany, there's a sign, Welcome to New Albany, and it tells you kind of the town motto, right? You know what the sign says? Anybody? The fair and friendly city, right? I'm sure if you've spent much time in New Albany, perhaps you've seen people whose conduct is befitting that. You know, maybe you've met people who are fair and friendly and, and they are credit to this, the city. But if you've spent much time in New Albany, I'm sure you've also probably met some people and you think, wow. They obviously weren't thinking of them when they put that on the sign. You know, maybe it's somebody driving. Maybe it's somebody in a store or on the sidewalk. And they say something or they do something and you think, <laughs> fair and friendly. And their conduct is not befitting being a citizen of a town that wants to be known as the fair and friendly city. There may be times when the news reports that something has happened over, maybe overseas with a soldier or a politician 
someone kind of high profile and the way they behaved kind of makes you hang your head and think, I'm ashamed that they've acted that way as an American. They are not doing, they're not doing, they're not living in a way that reflects very well on the United States. Paul uses this word purposefully. You behave yourself as a citizen. Why would he use a word that emphasizes conduct as a citizen when writing to the Philippians? Well, it's because Philippi is a colony of Rome. And as a colony of Rome, the citizens of Philippi enjoy Roman citizenship. And all the privileges that come with Roman citizenship. In the United States, if your parents are not citizens, but you're born here, you become a citizen. In Rome, that wasn't true. If they conquered your you know, new territory and your city is kind of brought into the empire, but you were not given citizenship, your, your city was not made a colony of, of Rome in that sense, just because you now belong to Rome does not mean that citizenship was conferred to you. But to Philippi, it had been conferred. They enjoy this status. And this was a big deal. Now, I don't necessarily mean that every member of the church at Philippi was a citizen, but just they would be very aware of that status. Who, you know, If you were a citizen, you'd be aware. You knew about it if you lived in that place. And they understood the privileges that came with being a citizen of Rome. It was in Philippi that we have one of the occasions when Paul mentions his Roman citizenship. You remember? He's thrown into jail. Acts chapter 16 tells us, verse 35 and following, when day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, release those men, talking about Paul and Silas. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. And Paul said to them, they have beaten us in public without trial. Men who are Romans and have thrown us into prison. And now are they sending us away secretly? No, indeed. But let them come themselves and bring us out. The policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. Their entire attitude toward Paul and Silas changes when they hear they're Roman citizens. They've mistreated them as Roman citizens. And now, instead of just telling them, you know, tell them they can go, now they come and appeal to them. <laughs> Everything's changed. Citizenship mattered. The Philippians understand this word, and that's why Paul uses it. But Paul is not talking about Roman citizenship in verse 27. As wonderful as Roman citizenship might have been, how much better, how much sweeter is citizenship in heaven? 
And that's what he's talking about. You are citizens of heaven, what he said in chapter 3. Your citizenship is in heaven. Live like it. Much greater citizenship. Much greater privileges. I was thinking this afternoon, and, and not to go into a lot of detail here, but just, just let me mention a few things that you could think about. Um, you know, citizens of heaven enjoy a better peace than citizens of Rome. One of the things about Rome was, you know, the, the peace of Rome. But while it might have meant peace for some people, it didn't mean peace for a lot of others. Um, lots of wars. But those who are citizens of heaven have an enduring peace, a peace brought about by Christ Jesus, who is our peace. Better laws. Rome had a system of laws that, as I understand, was an improvement over many other places. But how consistently were those laws kept? And were all those laws just? But the laws of heaven are all just. And they're all worth keeping. There's a better environment in heaven. <laughs> Again, with the idea of peace, there was still, you know, in the city, all kinds of corruption. It was an immoral place, false deities. But in heaven, there's none of that. Such a better environment. And one more, what a better king. You know, the, the emperors of Rome were men given to excesses. And some of them so, so very wicked. But in heaven, the king is Jesus. Perfect in every way. Well, you could almost do a sermon just on that, couldn't you? But I'll just give you that much and you can think about that uh, when you have time. Let me return to Philippians 1. Paul wanted the Philippians to remember that they were citizens of a better land. And with that in mind, we might read verse 27 kind of like this. Only live your life or conduct yourself as a citizen in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. One other word, and that is the word worthy. Paul uses this word in connection with our conduct more often than you might expect. In Colossians 1.10, he says that we are to walk worthy of the Lord or in a manner worthy of the Lord. In Ephesians 4.1, we're to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. In 1 Thessalonians 2.12, walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you. Here in Philippians 1, we're to walk worthy of the gospel of Christ. Walking in a manner worthy has nothing to do with earning the gospel of Christ or of earning salvation. Paul is writing to saints. He introduces the letter to them in chapter 1, verse 1, that way, to the saints who are in Christ Jesus in Philippi. So he's not saying walk this way so that you can become a Christian. 
What is it then to live in a manner worthy of the gospel? What does he mean by worthy? Well, the idea of living in a worthy manner is that of appropriateness or what is fitting. When you consider the privileges that are yours in the gospel, what is a fitting response? What's appropriate? There are some things that are appropriate and there are some things that are inappropriate. There are some things that reflect well on the gospel of Christ and there are other things that reflect poorly. It muddies the water and it makes it confusing for people who look on. Or another way to think about it is what's consistent? What's consistent with the gospel? If I remember correctly, this word that um, is used for worthy at one time had to do with uh, weights and scales. And so if you bought something that was, you know, we'll use pounds and ounces because I don't know how the, <laughs> their um, measurements work. But let's just say you know, it's one pound and you had to put a pound on the other side of the scale to to make it balance out. You know, that's an appropriate weight to match what's on this side. If it's inappropriate, you know, the scales are out of balance. And so the idea was something that, that was an appropriate response to what's on one side. So again, consistent, appropriate, fitting. But then consistent with what? And here, again, it is the gospel. What is it that balances out, if you will, on the scale, your conduct? If my conduct is on one side, what's, what's on the other side that needs to be fitting? And it's the gospel. So actually, the gospel, we could say, is here. And my life now needs to be fitting. It needs to be consistent with that. What does that look like? What is a life as a citizen of heaven that's lived in a way that's consistent with the gospel of Christ. And in verses 27 through 30, there are about four things that he mentions that I believe are an explanation of that. And we'll just touch on them for a moment tonight. The first, in verse 27, is standing firm. Again, verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. So standing firm. And the, the word here is is again one of those that are kind of picturesque. It is a word that refers to a soldier who is standing on a line or at a post and will not budge. Standing firm, you know, in the heat of battle, not backing up. Paul is saying to the Philippians, be at your post and don't budge. Don't back up. Don't give. Don't yield. And you have to think that there would be a constant temptation to do just that, to compromise. That's true, I suppose, in any culture, but remember the culture at Philippi. 
When Paul went there, there were lots of pagan deities. There was, you know, the slave girl who's making money for her masters by divination. There's all that kind of stuff going on. But do you remember what he did not find in Philippi? There was no no, no, uh, synagogue, no Jewish synagogue. So there weren't even enough people there to form a Jewish synagogue. So of all the worship going on there, what was not happening, any large number, was the worship of God. Very pagan culture. And Paul is not only, not only does he, does he recognize that, but in the outworking of that, he is attacked and thrown into jail. And now he writes to the Philippians and says, I know you're enduring the same kind of hostility that I endured and am enduring. I don't know if that means some of them are in jail now or not. I don't know exactly what that means. But again, in some degree, the hostility he has endured and is enduring, they're enduring. There would be the temptation to compromise and back up a little bit. Knock the hard edges off and and not do all that should be done or say all that should be said. And Paul says to them, don't back up. Don't be tempted to back up. Don't budge. He says it again in chapter 4 and verse 1. And there he turns it into an imperative. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. It's not only about being unyielding, though. You can be unyielding about the wrong things. It's to be unyielding about the things of the Lord. It is to be loyal to the Lord Jesus. Don't have divided loyalties. And he kind of ties that idea into it, I believe. And the next thing that he says in verse 27, not only are they to be standing firm, but he goes on to describe that as standing firm in one spirit with one mind. And bringing that into the mix, I believe what he's saying is that you're to stand firm together. It's not that he's telling us to go be Lone Rangers and find an outpost somewhere and stand there by yourself. But with one spirit and one mind together, stand. Together because they have these truths in common. And in that unity, in that commonality around the gospel of Christ Jesus, there's a mutual support as they stand And that standing with one spirit and one mind is an ongoing fight. It's not easy. It's not automatic. In chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, is there any of that? If there is any of that, then make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. In chapter 4 and verse 2, he has to write 
to a couple of people and say, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. There's a battle for this unity. The issue is one that was ongoing and had been ongoing since the earliest days of the New Testament church. Romans 12, 5, Paul says, So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. 1 Corinthians 1.10, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. And there are so many more, but I'll not read them all. There's a battle to fight for unity, but then in holding unity, you stand together, standing firm in one spirit, one mind. Third, he speaks of striving together for the faith of the gospel. A unity with a purpose. It's not unity for unity's sake. It's not, you know, let's just all be united around the idea of hanging out together and, you know, whatever else. It's, it's unity with a purpose. We're striving together for the faith of the gospel. The word for striving is the word from which we get our word athletics. It means to struggle along with someone. And it, I believe, pictures team sports and the idea of teammates joining together against a common opposition and then you know, striving to win. So Paul moves from the metaphor of a soldier who will not back up on his post to the metaphor of an athlete who joins with his teammates with a common opponent to win the victory. And what they're striving for, the victory to be won, is the victory for the faith of the gospel. And in that struggle, it is a struggle, not against flesh and blood, right? But One other word that I'll mention, and that's suffering. And verses 28 through 30 speak of this. He says, In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake. Not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So remember, he's talking about living a life as a citizen of heaven that conforms or that, that is fitting or appropriate to the gospel of Christ. And in that, he describes um, a, a Standing firm and the one spirit, one mind that, that shares in this struggle, a striving toward a common goal, and now suffering. And here he tells us 
that when suffering comes, we're not to be alarmed. And it really is when, isn't it? Not if, but when it comes, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed by your opponents. Verse 29, he speaks of this coming as something that's been granted to the Philippians for Christ's sake. Not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. It's been granted to you. The word granted comes from a word whose root is the word for grace. It's been graced to you. God has graciously gifted you, not only with faith, but He's graciously gifted you with suffering for His sake. How is that grace? You might wonder. Sometimes it doesn't feel very gracious in the moment, does it? How, How is that grace? Well, one way that we can see it as grace from God. In verse 28, amazingly, he says that it is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. Suffering for Christ. Now, we do have to be careful that we're saying suffering for Christ, right? You can suffer for lots of reasons. But suffering for Christ, and then having the grace to meet that, A sign of salvation for you and that too from God. So Paul has told the Philippians how he has viewed the suffering that he's endured. Even rejoicing. Rejoicing even when he wonders whether this will result in life or death. And then he turns to the Philippians and says, whether I'm there or not, you only conduct yourself as a citizen in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Remember the privileges that are yours from the gospel and live in a way that's appropriate to that. And among other things that surely could be said, Paul says that it looks like standing firm. Not giving into the culture and adopting the culture. Standing firm together. Encouraging one another. One mind, one spirit. Striving together toward A common purpose, the faith of the gospel and suffering. But not just suffering, but meeting that suffering by not being alarmed, but rather realizing it's been graced to you to suffer for his sake. Well, Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, I, I pray.
pray that you would give us lives that adorn the gospel. And these kinds of adornments that Paul describes here. God, we pray that you help us to take seriously the things that he has said and to then labor in pursuit of a conduct that's befitting a people who are citizens of heaven, who've been won with gospel power and given gospel privileges. God, we thank you for this great gospel. We thank you, God, for our Lord Jesus. It says, it is in his name we pray. Amen.